Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. This episode kicks off season four, and I can't think of a better way to start the season than by interviewing my fellow partner and GovCal CEO, Louis Gov. As always, enjoy the listen. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. All views and opinions expressed by any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right. Well, we got Louis Gov uh, back on the podcast. Louis, a fellow partner at Evergreen and CEO at GovCal. Well, uh, welcome back. Thanks a bunch, Jeff. Great to see you. How are you? We're doing good. We're just chatting a little bit ahead of this on the Super Bowl, and now here we are Monday after the Super Bowl. Never a dull, never a dull moment in markets, and fascinated to get your perspective on what's happening geopolitically right now and how it's how it's impacting markets. So let's start off with uh, with what's going on in Russia, Russia, Ukraine. This is kind of the talk of talk of markets right now. Um, what kind of impact can a Russian invasion have on financial markets? Well, it wouldn't be good, but I'm not sure. You know, it's it's a very good question uh, because, you know, markets are obviously being skittish. But is this because of Russia and Ukraine, or is this because of the rapidly rising price of energy, which is you know posing constraints? We know that bull markets typically end either because of rising cost of capital or rising cost of energy or both, or is it because of the high inflation and the and the promise of you know tighter a tighter Fed? Uh, for me, it's really the the latter point is the, the the most important, right? We've lived for the past really 15 years in an era where the Fed always promised, "Don't worry, I'll always keep rates low. Don't worry, I'm always, I've always got your back, and I'm always ready to inject money if anything falls." And then all of a sudden, we're now in a world where maybe that promise gets taken away, and you have a lot of assets, whether equities, bonds, uh, corporate bonds, uh, real estate, that are priced for uh, under that promise. So, you know, I think it's tempting to to link Ukraine and Russia to a lot of things that's happening in the markets, but uh, that might be overly simplistic. There, you know, the the more important factor may well be the the shift in uh, in monetary policy, which which is gonna which is happening regardless of what happens in Ukraine. Now, having said all this. To your point, if uh, if you know tomorrow we wake up to find out that uh, that Russian troops uh, are in Kiev, uh, then uh, yeah, no, the markets won't like. Well, the energy markets will like it. The energy price will, will go through the roof, but uh, but but nothing else would like it. Having said this, personally, I uh, I firmly believe. Do, do you know Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot? No. Uh, well, it's it's this you know it's these these tramps that talk and they keep waiting for this guy to show up called Godot and he never shows up. Uh, the bottom line is I think you'll. Uh, uh, you're more likely to see Godot show up in Kiev than uh, than you are Russian troops. Uh, the reality is, you know, according to estimates, there's 130,000 Russian troops on the border. You can't invade Ukraine with 130,000 troops. I mean, the, the maths just don't add up. Ukraine's been building fortifications for the past five years. You know, you need a ratio when you're attacking. You need a ratio of at least four to one. And the reality is, Ukraine probably has about 400,000 soldiers. So. You don't attack of a ratio of one to four. So Russia's not invading with 130,000 troops. It's just that simple. If they do, they'll get their ass kicked, which, you know, Putin is smart enough to not do that. 
Well, uh, your comments on the Fed and almost the safety blanket that they've been reminds me a lot of my four-year-old. She's got a she's got a little stuffed <laughs> bunny that she sleeps with at nighttime that we call Bun Bun. And if she's got it in her bed, she is right to sleep. But the moment that we can't find Bun Bun, it's like it's going to be a, a tough night of sleep. So it, it it does feel a little bit like the Fed has been such a safety blanket to markets. That's uh, excuse me, a safety blanket. To, yeah, to markets, and we'll see what happens ahead. I do agree with you that that the Fed's having a much larger impact on markets. But, and, and not to get away from to, from Russia, because I do want your thoughts on this, let's, let's unpack this a little bit more. What would Russia gain by invading? I mean, I guess what, what's like the leverage that they're looking to get or what would be the win in invading for them if they do? Even though you're saying they won't. So I, I, I will I will answer that in a second. First, I'd love your kid analogy with with Bun Bun, and I got to pick up on it because I've been using my own kid analogy. My my kids are older than yours, but I've been on enough road trips with with my kids, you know, where you, you put them in the back seat, and invariably within half an hour of the road trip, they're fighting with each other. And so you turn around and you say, "You guys better shut up, or I'm going to pull over and give you a hiding." But meanwhile, you have no intentions of pulling over, and you have no intention of giving them a hiding. Um, and for me, that's the Fed today. The Fed today is telling the markets, you guys better stop with this inflation stuff or I'm going to like pull over and give you guys a hiding, having absolutely no intention of, of doing so because the reality is the Fed is stuck and they can't really raise interest rates all that much. Of course, they'll raise them. Of course, they will. But I don't think they're going to raise them the five times that uh, that the market currently anticipates. Um, now, what uh, what would Russia gain by, by invading? Um, to be honest, I think it gained very little, which is why I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it would lose a lot more than it would gain. It would, of course, uh, lo- you know, risk uh, all of its trade with uh, Western Europe. It would you know, suffer from massive sanctions, which could even, you know, uh, hurt uh, trade with countries even like China. And we wrote a piece uh, this very morning on this. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the big problem is that so many countries still use U.S. technology for semiconductors, for software, etc. So if tomorrow the U.S. tells everyone, look, if you're using U.S. technology, which could be as simple as using Microsoft, what, what you and I are doing right now, if you, like, if you use any U.S. technology, you're not allowed to sell to Russia, then that's that, right? So the, the economic devastation for Russia could potentially be devastating. And, you know, I, I, I like to think that uh, Vladimir Putin is, is smart enough to, to know that. So what it would gain, you know, the, the what would Russia invade? I, given the few number of troops it would have, it wouldn't go all the way to Kiev, right? Because it wouldn't want to deal with a uprising, guerrilla warfare and whatever not. It would just invade the eastern part of Russia that it's the eastern part of Ukraine, sorry, that it sort of automatically controls de facto already, that old Donetsk region. But it's actually, you know, it's the poorest part of, of Ukraine. Now, you know, the argument is, oh, but, it, you know, this place has a lot of coal mines. It's like, yeah, who cares? Like, everybody's got coal mines. Like, there's, there's coal mines everywhere in Russia. Like, Putin is not wanting for coal. You know, he doesn't need to invade eastern Ukraine to go get coal. He's got plenty at home. So, all this to say, you know, you put it all together and the economic costs far, far outweigh any, frankly, very marginal benefit that I would incur from this. So, you know, it's 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 not in, in uh, you, Russia's interest to invade. What is in Russia's interest is to ensure that Ukraine remains a non-NATO country, uh, a little bit like Finland was, or a little bit like Austria was post-World War II. That's what they're trying to achieve. I don't think they're trying to achieve, you know, territorial gain. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because it's like, and yet, then why the why the posturing of sorts, right? I mean, it, so 
Well, so here's 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 an interesting question. You know, you have Ukraine. The Ukrainian president each time he speaks keeps saying we're not about to get invaded. You know, stop talking about this. Russia keeps saying we're not about to invade them. France, Germany. Italy, Spain are basically all like, uh, well, there's nothing to see here. Move along. The one kicking a massive fuss about this, it's not Ukraine. Ukraine is not kicking a massive fuss. The one kicking a massive fuss is the United States. Right. This that is, was my next question. My next this question is, this is the U.S. Is the U.S. response Care? matter on this? And I was actually I wanted your perspective on it in terms of like from a Chinese perspective. And I'm sure China is watching this closely. Why does the U.S. response to this whole thing matter? Well, for, I turn the question around. Is like, why does the U.S. care so much about this? Since when is Ukraine a big national interest of of the United States? Uh, you know, I'm, I I don't want to sound insulting, but I, I you know be willing to place a fairly large bet that two thirds of Americans wouldn't be able to place Ukraine on a map. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it, it is it is a bit baffling the the American and like the media hype in the US that you don't see elsewhere around the world. You don't see it in France. You don't see it in Germany. You don't see it like it's the media hype in, in the US surrounding this Ukraine story is really off the charts. So you could say, well, you know, the media is selling its next, next sort of four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like, like the pandemic is now done. You need something else to scare people and keep, keep them glued to CNN. So, you know, that, that's one possible option. But I think it actually goes deeper than that. Um, and the, it all starts with the fact that uh, we are entering into an energy crisis. Uh, unfortunately, that's the reality. We've underinvested for 10 years in energy production. You know, we made a massive bet that solar and wind would would carry the day and would uh, would meet our needs. The reality now is with the world reopening, uh, we're finding out we don't have energy, uh, enough energy to, to go around. Um, simply put, you know, if the world fully reopens, by the end of 2023, the world will need to produce an extra 60 to 80 exajoules. To put things in context, the whole nuclear, global nuclear industry is 26 exajoules. So between now and the end of 2023, we need to add two and a half times the world nuclear industry. It's not going to happen. Like, you know, when you look at the carbon, the the energy needs between now and the end of 2023, it can only be met with carbon. That It's unfortunate. You know, I, I, I wish we could all do it with wind and solar, but the reality is that's what it is. And carbon, it means either oil, natural gas, or coal. Given the pollution constraints we've placed on our, ourselves, we're going to have to go for natural gas. From there, you think, okay, we're in an energy crisis. We need more natural gas. There's only three potential producers, U.S., Middle East, Russia. I mean, by and large, that's it. Um, so if you're the U.S., you're sitting there and you think, the problem if it's Russia becomes the marginal gas producer for Asia and for Europe, then that natural gas is increasingly going to get priced not in U.S. dollars, but it's going to get priced in euros and renminbi. Because Russia doesn't need U.S. dollars. Russia needs euros to buy Mercedes cars from Germany, and it needs renminbi to buy capital goods and um, and consumer goods from China. So this, I think, is at the, the heart of the problem we're facing today, is that – if Russia becomes the world's marginal gas, natural gas producer, then the 
link that has gone on for seven, more than 70 years between energy and the US dollar starts to dissipate. And as that link starts to melt away, as energy gets priced into different currencies, the US dollar starts to go down and go down hard and go down structurally. If this occurs, if the US dollar goes down hard structurally, then that means higher inflation in the US, and that means a much higher cost of funding for the US government, so high interest rate costs. If you're the US government, you can see how this is not attractive as a proposition. So what you do, you try your best to you know, do an embargo of Russia on the one hand, while on the other, pushing Europeans and Asians to buy more of their natural gas from the Middle East. And so you saw just three weeks ago, the U.S. announced that Qatar was now a key ally of the United States because this gives stability to – well, the division of stability. So if you're Thailand, if you're Japan, if you're Korea, if you're Germany, if you think, okay, I'm not going to get my natural gas from the U.S., from Russia, which is you know on the verge of a fight with the U.S., and I'm going to get it with Qatar instead. And in this way, you keep the U.S. dollar strong and you keep the fund, the cost of funding for the U.S. government low. Fascinating perspective. You don't hear that all, all the time. That's why I have you on. Uh, so it's it's more of an energy story than anything. I think so. I think look, you know, the starting point is my, my starting point as I look at the world today again, where we we have an energy crisis unfolding. Is it a coincidence that as we have an energy crisis unfolding, we're doing our best to ostracize Russia? I I don't think it is. The the reality, the problem is, as energy prices go go up, Russia's power goes up, and and so that's that's problematic for for a lot of folks. Is there a, is, like who wins from this, or do you even see a winner? I see. I think long term, Russia is the big winner from this. You know, Russia will be the marginal producer. The I think the attempt uh, by the United States to isolate Russia uh, are actually failing. Uh, Europe is basically not not getting not going along with it. Worse yet, uh, instead of isolating Russia, what U.S. policy has ended up doing is creating a, a strong Russia-China axis. Um, you know. Ten years ago, China had no friends, and U.S. policy became we need to isolate China, right? It was a trans-Pacific partnership. It was the uh, AUKUS uh, uh, trade um, defense pact with Australia and the U.K. And then, you know, in the past six months, the U.S. turns around and does everything it can to try to not only isolate China but isolate Russia at the same time. You know, that's picking two fights. You you got to choose. And so by trying to isolate Russia on the one hand and China on the other, I think the U.S. overreached. And what you ended up with is creating this de facto alliance between Russia and China, which will end up strengthening both countries. Because fundamentally, you know, Russia and China are sort of natural economic partners. Russia produces everything China needs, and China produces everything Russia needs. The I would say that the genius of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and their, and the 40 years that followed was, you know, the genius of when Nixon flew to Beijing, he managed to basically carve out China from the broader communist world and de facto make China an almost ally of the U.S., uh, if not an ally, at least an economic partner. And that launched China, of course, on its 40-year just amazing economic run. It allowed for the, it allowed for the end of the Vietnam War. It, it did a lot of things, but you know, China. Uh, it's Nixon flying to to Beijing, split 
Russia and China for 40 years. And in the really in the past six months, the genius, what we've managed to do is put them right back together. So you had, it's and, and you know, now that, that marriage is almost consummated, it's, uh, they're, they're basically in bed together. So the, the U.S. has managed to create one big, massive economic block all across the Asian landmass from, from Beijing all the way to St. Petersburg. Uh, so I, I think that's a, a massive foreign policy mistake by the United States. How should investors react to that then? Well, I think it's very, like I said, I think it's very bullish Russia. So if, if you can own Russian assets, you know, today Russian bonds are given away in the street. The Russian ruble is massively undervalued. Russian equities are massively undervalued because if they've sold off heavily on all these fears, put the bonds in the equities. Um, I think it's very bullish uh, China long term because it's uh, it's you know China's China has three main weaknesses. One of them is dependence on foreign semiconductors, U.S. semiconductors, and they're trying to address that and spending a lot of money there. The second is dependence on foreign energy, but a tie-up with Russia sort of solves that issue. Um, and the third is dependence on the U.S. dollar, but uh, you know the more the more. China and Russia managed to get together in one block, the less the dependence on the U.S. dollar starts to matter. Because the reason China needs U.S. dollars in the first place is to buy oil. That's that's the main way China spends its U.S. dollars is buying oil and other commodities. If it can now buy these in renminbi from China, then that leaves China much strengthened. So when I look at all this, I want to buy Chinese government bonds. I want to buy Russian government bonds. I want to buy Chinese corporate bonds. I want to buy Russian corporate bonds. I want to buy basically uh, just really pan-Asian bonds, and yeah, I think that's that's what's unfolding. The, the the policies being followed are fundamentally, I think, bearish for the U.S. dollar long term. I was going to ask, what's the impact to the U.S. as an energy exporter? Well, so in, you know, the U.S. is um, it's sort of break even in terms of energy, right? It's not. Uh -huh. It, it exports a little bit, you're right, but it's not when you, in the whole scale of U.S. trade balance. The, the energy exports are small now. If you go back to before the shale revolution, so if you go back to the early 2000s, the U.S. was a massive importer Correct. of energy, and so back then. When the price of energy would go up, that would be a real drag on the U.S. economy, right? Because that would mean that as the price of energy went up, money would leave the U.S. and go to Venezuela, to Saudi Arabia, to Nigeria, to, to Canada, to, to wherever. So money would fly, fly out of the U.S. It was a drain on, 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 the, um, on the U.S. purse. Today, when energy prices go up, you know, U.S. is roughly self-sufficient in energy. Uh, when energy prices go up, it means money leaves from New York to go down to Texas or leaves from Michigan to go down to Oklahoma. So within, within the broader U.S., the U.S. can actually cushion and stomach uh, a higher energy price much better than, say, Western Europe or, or Asia because it, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's broadly self-sufficient. Now, within the U.S., it means that you know, places like Texas will boom and places like New York will bust, which is already unfolding, but it's only going to accelerate from here. And there's so many implications. I mean, I'm curious and yeah, I'm curious on maybe even like the U.S. political implications of this because I, I, it's going to shake out, I'm sure. Well, the uh, first the first implication I would say, especially for a private wealth like Evergreen, is you might want to start being careful about, you know, where you own your muni bonds, for example, because, you, you know, holding muni bonds and energy importing blue states, let's say in the Northeast, uh, where as energy prices go up, uh, jobs get destroyed, people move out, um, and you, you don't want to do that. You, you, you probably want to be holding your, your munis in 
energy exporting red states, whether that be Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Dakota, Colorado, um, those kind of, that, that's where you want to own your muni bonds because, you know, with as the price of energy goes up, I think you're going to have some localities are going to struggle and go bust. Yep. I was I was I was not planning to ask you this, but let's let me let's add this as a bonus question because you brought sure. up the Fed earlier, uh, and as I mentioned, I do agree that that's having a larger impact on markets. But let's I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the Fed's playbook ahead? What are you know? There, there's so much discussion and 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 you know I guess and, and and also fear around that right now from what I hear almost every day. How how do you think the Fed plays it ahead? Uh, and again, like how should investors react to to that? Look, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, I you know I wish I had the crystal ball. I I, I don't. All I can do is look in the past uh, and look at the present. Uh, what I do know is in the not so distant past, the Fed was very busy telling us, you know, inflation can overshoot for a while and it won't matter, right? Um, just six months ago, that was the message. Right. It was you know we can we can withstand higher inflation for longer than people expect. Now, of course, you could say the message has now changed and they've changed their mind. And, you know, everybody's entitled to change their mind. But that was the institutional makeup of the Fed not that long ago was very much a message of we want higher inflation. And that brings me to a point I've, I've made several times in various pieces. But today's inflation rate is not a bug. It's a feature. I mean, this is where they wanted to get to. They wanted higher inflation. They kept saying they wanted higher inflation. They now have it. But so, you know, it's not I think most people look at this in a view like, oh, how, how could this have happened? You know, how could we be getting higher inflation rate? It's like, well, they've been announcing this and telegraphing it for 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 years. You know, this right. this you know, I think I'm going to give the Fed the credit to know to think that they know enough economics and they've they've studied enough and they have enough PhDs in there to know that if you run budget deficits of 15% of GDP and you're running money supply growth at 35% year on year, um, you're going to end up with inflation. You know, it's like this is what happens every time. And these guys will have spent years and years at university studying this stuff. So they got us there. They wanted us there. We're here. Do you feel like so, it's, it's being amplified by supply supply chain bottlenecks? I mean, is that, or is that not a major driver of it in your view? Well, no, no, it's definitely that. That's no, no, it's definitely part of it. But uh, you know, if there was no money in the system, if there was no excess money in the system, prices also wouldn't be going up, right? The, correct, the, correct, it, correct. The 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 the, the, the the bottlenecks, you know, is that the symptom? Is that the cause? Right. Um, and the the reality is, um, what, the we, demand side. What, what we have today, what we have today is a labor market that's as tight as it's ever been and an energy market that's as tight as it's ever been now. And that brings me to the second point uh, I, I want to make about, you know, there's the past and then there's the present. You know, today the Fed may be talking hawkishly. We have seven and a half percent inflation rate and all that stuff, but they're still doing QE. I mean, on the, if I told you two years ago, Jeff, in 2022, we'll have seven and a half percent inflation rate, and the Fed will simultaneously be injecting on the very week we have seven and a half percent inflation rate, the Fed will inject an additional eleven billion dollars, and will be doing so every week. You would have thought Louis funny smoking the funny stuff. Um, you know, it's either or. 
either we're going to have seven and a half percent inflation rate or the Fed's going to be doing QE. But yet here we are. So, you know, the Fed is and that goes back to, to the analogy I was saying of the Fed driving along and telling the, the kids in the back in the back to shut up or they're going to get a hiding. You know, the Fed may, t may talk a good game on inflation. You know, fundamentally, here we are. They're still doing QE. We have seven and a half percent inflation rate. They're still invest injecting ten billion dollars or ten eleven billion dollars every single week. So yeah, you know that's going to come to an end. Yes, they will raise interest rates. I think the market right now thinks is, is betting on five interest rate increases in 2022. Uh, I would very much take the under on that. I don't think they'll get 2020. They'll get five rate increases. I, as a result, uh, I'm a bear on the U.S. dollar uh, because the Fed won't be doing that. Uh, and I think where you want to have your money is in uh, the central banks of the world that have already that aren't just talk that are following uh, a hawkish policy uh, and that's in China that's in Russia uh, that's and uh, in, in across a lot of across a lot of Brazil it's across a lot of emerging markets but if you want to own government debt today you own it in places that have high real rates and hawkish central banks not places that have low real rates or negative real rates actually and central banks that are all talk and no action i've heard this from you before yeah <laughs> we'll probably wrap it up there that was good stuff we got a, we got a lot of thoughts on right yeah, you, a lot of thoughts on the fed you've heard but, it from me you've heard it from me before but if you look at the past 12 months i just want to highlight this right. if you look at the past 12 months long dated chinese government bonds I've done almost as well as the S&P 500. They're the second best performing asset class in the world over the past 12 months. And they've done so with basically zero volatility relative to the S&P that's all over the shop. So you've basically, in Chinese government bonds in the past 12 months, you've done more or less the same as the S&P and you've slept very well at night. Yeah, no, I have. I, I wasn't saying you were wrong. I, I, <laughs> no, 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 I know. I have heard this thing before. Um, so, but again, you really get to get your thoughts on Russia, what's going on with the Fed, interest rates, and especially with with energy markets right now. Um, so appreciate your time, Louis. Thanks for jumping on with us. Pleasure. Always good to see you, Jeff. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.